I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Welcome to the MVP Show. My intention is that you listen to the stories of these MVP guests and are inspired to become an MVP and bring value to the world through your skills. If you have not checked it out already, I do a YouTube series called How to Become an MVP. The link is in the show notes. With that, let's get on with the show. Today's guest is from Dallas, Texas in the United States. She's a founder and CEO of Item by Item. She was first awarded her MVP in 2023. Teaching is her passion. You can find links to her bio, social media, etc., in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to the show, Elif. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for having me. Good to have you on the show. Uh, I, um, I I always find it interesting talking to other trainers, and you've obviously got quite a history in training. Yes. Um, I started my D365 journey as a consultant, uh, just like many other D365 people in the in the space. I worked as a consultant, then as a project manager. Then I was a director for several years for um, a partner. And I was very familiar with just implementations and the challenges around training. Um, and I always felt like there was a real need for D365 training um, in the D365 space. A lot of the Microsoft materials are really good, but they're mostly geared towards consultants. And I always felt like there wasn't enough materials for core team members, subject matter experts, and end users. And that's really our uh, primary focus. And that's been my uh, passion to make sure that the D365 materials are really towards people who are going to use D365 in their day-to-day jobs. Before we, we before we unpack all the technology, tell us a bit about you, family, food, fun. What do they mean to you? Um, I live in Dallas and I, um, I'm married and I have two kids. Uh, actually the funny fact is I literally just moved to a new house yesterday. Wow. Um, yes. A big life change. Uh, so both of my kids have just recently finished high school. They're going to college and we're going into the empty nester, um, kind of phase of our lives. Uh, so we have moved to a smaller house and a more fun part of Dallas so so that we can enjoy a little bit. I love food. I love being able to walk to places. I am originally from Turkey. I grew up in, uh, in the city. So Dallas is really not the epitome of city per se from like public transportation and walking perspective. Um, I, I'm really super excited about living in a part that's more city life. We can walk to shops, we can walk to the coffee, um, coffee uh, places. So I'm, I'm very, very excited. Um, I, um, 
what else is about me? I love to travel and uh, my job allows me to actually spend time in different parts of the world um, without, you know, necessarily affecting my work. So we do have some plans to travel to New Zealand and a few other places. Yeah. In the next couple of years to just kind of enjoy um, being done with the, with having the kids all the time, you know, with us and busy with their schedule. Nice. How long ago since you were in uh, Istanbul? I actually was there last summer. Uh, again, a, an interesting fact. Uh, my daughter graduated from high school last year, and she always wanted to have take a gap year before college. So we took her there last summer. Uh, which I haven't seen her since October 1st. So she's been having an absolute blast um, in Istanbul, you know, making friends, going to school. And my son will do the same. I actually am not from originally from Istanbul, but I went to college there. So it's it's just a beautiful, beautiful, crazy city. So um, I'm, I'm heading out there uh, in mid-June again. Um, so it's really a, a great you know, way of just kind of being a part of the culture and enjoying really the city life. Have you ever been? Yes. Yeah, I, lo- I love Istanbul. I went to Istanbul, Cappadocia, Ephesus, uh, Anzac, um, you know, Cove, all all those type areas because, you know, for New Zealand, uh, Turkey has always paid a big part of our culture um, because of, of, of wartime activities. And so, yes, my wife and I spent – I think a couple of weeks um, in Turkey. That's great. Um, when, yeah, when we're living in London. So, and of course, we love Turkish food um, <laughs> very much. Um, so, yeah, yeah. That's great. I've actually been to the um, to Çanakkale also, where the a lot of the Anzac, um, you know boys are still sleeping so I think it's also special for us to go and see it it just kind of shows you the 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 effects of war you know all of these young guys traveling you know thousands of miles to a part of the world that's just so far away and never making it back home so it's crazy uh, it's it is crazy and some sad but they're in good hands they're sleeping in our land and we will take care of them from this point on so yes what I found very interesting, which I never knew, is that it was part of the whole, that period of the breaking away, probably, it wasn't the Ottoman Empire and, you know, and Constantinople and the the key Turkish guy, and I can't remember his name, there's big statues and memorials to him down there, yes. um, who, who really founded modern day Turkey, right? Yes. So his name is Atatürk. So it's, it's interesting yes, because they, yes, they, before the modern Turkish Republic, Turks didn't have last names. Everybody was called by their parents, like son of such and such sort of stuff. So Atatürk means father of the Turks in Turkish and the Turkish People gave him that last name. His name is actually Mustafa Kemal, but his last name is Atatürk. And it was, um, yes, it was that part where Turkey was split off, like Ottoman Empire was ending, and it was kind of split in between the European countries, and Atatürk was fighting to keep a modern um, uh, Turkey. And then we were, you know, obviously fighting with uh, England or Britain and as a part of that war, um, that we've, uh, fought with, um, with the New Zealand, um, as well, but, um, not necessarily New Zealand, but New Zealand kind of represented the British empire. But, um, 
at the end, it all we ended up keeping what is modern Turkey now, and then the remaining of the Ottoman Empire got split into the country that countries that we know in more in the Eastern Europe, you know, like um, yeah. It was it was interesting because after being there, I then read the um, the largest book I've ever read in my life, I would say, which was the i don't know who authored the book but it was on winston churchill and it was there that i found out because winston churchill was always a hero to me and there i found out it was him that actually sent the anzacs the australian the new zealands into this and it was his arrogance really that caused such an absolute slaughter and his sleight of hand around you know taking ships off germany and whatnot that actually created the whole kerfuffle in the first place so my my view of winston churchill over time started very high and over as i've learned and read more of history it's lowered and lowered and lowered more and more it's you know you see how like the different nations goals end up being carried by other nations who have nothing to do with it so it was a similar thing you know, in, when Ottoman Empire ended, also the the nobody th- thought about leaving some land for modern Turkey. So everybody thought that they could just split the whole thing off. But you know, it's just um, I think those were like you know, like when you think about the modern technology today and the phones and a little bit watching the Ukraine war. You know, I think it was. You know, I think none of that would be possible now, everything being decided behind closed doors without really being thought about the effect on actual people. Um, Those times are a little bit over, I think, but it's definitely a part of history um, that whether you, you know, I think one way or the other, we need to learn from it and appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we won't have to live it again. Yeah. Oh, the other thing that really struck me, and this is, you know, coming from a, a very young country, I think one of ours is, as in our country is one of the youngest in, in the world, as in discovered, colonized, that type of thing, is that um, I couldn't get over the the very strong Greek influence on that southern part, uh, that region, you know, Ephesus and, and things like that, like stuff I had read in history books that were like live, Troy, you know, was just... For me, it was amazing, amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's funny because we went to when we went to Istanbul Archaeology Museum a couple of years ago when my kids were a little bit younger, and they have just redone that museum, and it's spectacular. By the way, if anybody goes to Istanbul, you should definitely visit it. It just reopened last year, and uh, at the entrance there were these two lions on each side of the door, you know. And, you know, kids are all over these things, like getting on it. We're like taking pictures as if it's just like a rock, piece of rock. And then you look and then at the bottom, it's like 7,500 years old, some sort of (laughs) some crazy number. And it's there's just so much history. Almost it becomes a little bit like the norm. Oh, it's another column. It's another thing. But it's just uh, there's definitely, you know, it was one of the firstly populated parts of the world, um, you know, um, and then that that's the reason that there's just so much history and um, that you can visit in person and sometimes even touch or sit on it. So Uh, the other thing I couldn't get over, and I know this is not the subject of our podcast, but it's interesting, (laughs) is is the is the the 
at the point when archaeology was starting out, so much of it was done there and done badly, you know, as in, and, uh, you know, when treasure was unearthed, what did they do? They sent all the locals away, they grabbed it and they took it away to their countries. And I couldn't believe, you know, and in, in what I observed of some of the reading and um, a part of my travels, I've been to Russia, I've been to Moscow and I've been to the Kremlin and um, in the Kremlin seeing all their treasures that had been acquired from around the world and then going there and finding that that's where a lot of the treasure was taken away to, either Germany first and then ultimately through history and and just, you know, the taking away of some unbelievable artifacts to other countries to, you know, that were built there. It was just, it was mind-blowing that whole stuff that happened through history, the spoils being taken away. For the locals, sometimes, even at that time, they didn't probably realize the importance of it. They also probably didn't realize that there's just an abundance of it. I mean, when you go to Ephesus in different parts, there's just like a fields and fields of artifacts. So I think for them, it was probably they were probably either talked into or I've heard so many different weird agreements that were made that some, you know, that, that they were just kind of like the locals didn't really understand. And somehow they, they, they were, they also maybe didn't feel like it was that important. And uh, a lot of that stuff, you're absolutely right. Ended up uh, somewhere in Europe. Um, uh, but I think there there were some efforts in the last, I would say, 10, 20 years to get some of them back. Um, and um, and I think Ottoman Empire did a pretty decent job of also trying to get them back. But it is just a lot. You know, um, I think um, as long as I think it's seen by everybody and it's not in somebody's safe hidden away from the world i think everybody would be okay with it because as long as people know that where it's from and the history behind it yeah yeah so true let's talk about what we came here to talk about (laughs) (laughs) tell me tell me a bit about um first of all um, let's, I, I just want to unpack your company because I find it very interesting and we'll make sure we put links to the show notes. So item by item, tell us a bit about what that company does and what resources it provides, um, to people. So basically what we provide is a learning platform, a subscription to a learning platform in which you can consume materials to learn about whichever D365 product that you're interested in. Um, So instead of the traditional, you know, usually when you're trying to learn about D365, the traditional way of thinking is there's X number of training for like, let's say finance or supply chain or different parts of it. But we really didn't want to take that approach and create a large chunks of training. So instead, our mentality was, if there is a skill that a learner needs to know to perform in D365, let's create a video for it. And that is a micro course in our world. So in each video, we're teaching the learner how to either perform a task, whether that's creating a POS transaction, creating an order, doing a procurement action, or doing an accounting act, etc. Um, or we are trying to teach them a concept. 
there are these concepts in D365 that are new when you're like starting to work with it. Um, and we, um, we've basically created these videos, more than 1,200 of these micro courses in the platform. And you can think of them like little Lego blocks. So it gives us lots of flexibility of mix and match these small videos in any way we like. And then what we did is we sat down and thought about different roles and responsibilities within an organization. Who are the people who are going to be learning and using D365? You have accounting staff, a controller, a, an inventory analyst, you know, all of these roles. And we've created learning paths um, and combined these micro courses together uh, in a particular order. And we have some assessments in there, some gamification. So that when the learner gets into the platform, they can see what assigned to them right away, what learning paths are assigned to them. It's relevant to their job and it's very intuitive. They click on the learning path and they right away start to go through these videos. Because the videos are short, they can pause it at any time. They can bring up a D365 instance, replicate the process there. They don't need to take lots of notes. They don't need to remember a lot of steps. So it really helps to have this micro learning strategy which is, you know, really helpful to adults to really learn a topic in a quick way. It also gives us ability to find exactly what you're looking for. You know, let's say that you're doing some testing and you forgot how to do something. If you have the traditional training, you're going to have to dig through two days of training materials and find exactly where, you know, you learn that one particular thing. But with this, you can just do a keyword search and find that one video, watch it, and be able to go your way. So it's um, so what we're doing is we're connecting with customers who are implementing D365 and helping them throughout the implementation, whether that's training their core team or their end users, and then sometimes even post-implementation when they're hiring new staff or they want people to be cross-trained between departments. Um, obviously, what we provide is standard training, um, but we also have capability of adding custom training on top of what we have. Uh, sometimes customers create the custom training and we just add it free of charge or they ask us to create the custom training and we do that and there's a special fee for that. And then we um, we have had great success and we can definitely see in the implementation. Today, actually, I had a meeting with a customer and uh, we were discussing this because they, are, they were struggling to engage some of the core team members to log in and follow the IBI platform. And they, they, they reiterated this that I, I hear from all of our customers. The people who are spending more time on training in the platform are so much more vocal and much more active within the meetings. The meetings are so much better and interactive and the decision making is much stronger. So it's, um, hopefully that's what we're bringing to the table as a value proposition to the companies that are implementing D365 and get them to a level where partnership is better with them and their partner. Mm, mm, very good. Tell me about how you become an MVP. 
Um, so I have been in the D365 space for a while, and I was at a, at a conference last year, and this topic was being discussed um, within a, a breakfast that I was attending, and uh, everybody was talking about, you know, such and such is became MVP. How do you become MVP? And someone mentioned that you have to be nominated by someone from Microsoft to be an MVP. And I, I was, I met uh, a couple of Microsoft people and mentioned that to them um, the next day. And one of them actually nominated me. And I, I received, um, I did receive um, an email. And then I honestly didn't know much about it. Like I didn't know the requirements or I didn't know like how to go about it. And I, I do have a unique background. And what is amazing, also surprising to me, is there are not that many. D365 FNO MVPs in the world and in the North America as well. What I came to find out is there are only 20 worldwide or 20 plus, maybe 20 to 25. And um, we are around 10 in North America, which is US plus uh, Canada. Um, so then I just went through the application process Um I, I'm, I was already qu quite active. I have, you know, the website that I'm active on LinkedIn. I do a lot of collaborative blog posts, videos, you know, obviously as a part of my job. Um, and um, I did not hear anything for several months. <laughs> I, and in the website, they don't really tell you, like, they don't really tell you they're going to tell you no. So I'm like, well, I guess this is no, you know, they, they are not. But then I um, I found out actually the day before my birthday uh, that I got, I received an email and um, that I'm an MVP. So I, I was really lucky because um, I got to go to the MVP summit um, in Redwood in April. Um, so, and I got to meet some just spectacular people. It is really a, a great community and um um, we got to learn a lot from Microsoft during the this summit, also connect with others. And it was the first one after COVID. I think everybody at Microsoft was also happy to have people in the campus. So it was a really, really fun, fun uh, activity. Um, I'm just super excited because I like the, 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 the D365 training part, obviously it's my passion and I work a lot with customers. That's more the, also the business part, but I also like to work a lot with youth and um, college students on career planning and attending, you know, just like talking about, especially with, you know, um, about particularly business applications. Uh, you know, like I mentioned before, you can see there's a huge excitement about like power apps and power platform and the, the there's big community. And I think that gets a lot of voice um, through the MEPs. But um, I just want to let everybody know that there's a huge career opportunities within the biz apps world, like on the more on the on the FNO and CE side. So um, hope I'm uh, I'm. I've already done some work um, with Microsoft uh, through, you know, the students in college, but I'm also going to do some local work in some local colleges here in Texas to, to you know, just talk about career options, training um, opportunities for them as well. Hey, thanks for listening. I'm your host, business application MVP, Mark Smith, otherwise known as the NZ365 guy. If you like the show and want to be a supporter, 
check out buymeacoffee.com forward slash NZ365 guide. Thanks again and see you next time.